Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What's good, Internet? It is Monday, April 23rd, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 152. Uh, it is it is almost May. I think it's spring. I think we made it to spring. Is it, it is really, like, though? Or is it a tease? Is it going to snow outside. tomorrow? <laughs> I went outside and my entire face was filled with pollen, so I think we made it. I think that's okay. the... I, you, might, you might be right. That's the voice of Danielle Riendo, obviously, <laughs> uh, joining me from, from sunny Brooklyn. Sunny uh, Brooklyn, but just, sunny, over, just over the line from Queens. Just sunny over the Brooklyn line. Is, my, is my Sopranos OC. It's always uh, sunny Also joining me, uh, Patrick Klepek. Yeah, hey, Divine, Illinois is warm too. It's 62 degrees out. I Look at you. Turned down my, uh, my AC, uh, or my heat rather, and uh, yeah, it's good. Like now it. you're just living inside and playing video games. I wore, I wore, <laughs> well, stop, that's, okay, now I'm just, uh-huh. gonna, now I'm just, my whole, everything about me is crumbling in, in that in that single sentence. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> this is our lives, you know, that's what we do. Um, what are you, you said you were wearing something special? What were you wearing? I'm uh, wearing uh, short sleeves. Hell you know, yeah. yeah. Short it's, sleeves. it's a little, it's like, it's not going to feel yes. good as soon as the sun goes down, but okay, at that point I'll be inside, so fuck it. Do you ever get the feeling that like you encourage the weather to change by being just like obstinate about your fashion choices? We're like, no, I'm dressing for summer. It's gonna be summer. Well, that's more. I, I'm stubborn about it, and the cold doesn't bother me that much. So I, gotcha. will, I, I can push it. Like right. where my wife right. is dressing up in clearly much more appropriate uh, <laughs> temperature based weather, but I'm like, nah, like I'm done. I'm in this, and because the cold doesn't bother me that much, like I can, I, I at some point will just be stubborn about it, and even though yep. it's like. 4.30 and the sun's going down and the wind is picked up and if someone asks, are you cold? I'll be like, I'm fine. I'm cold. You're cold. Yeah. yeah, 100%. 100%. How are your weekends? Did you did you both have nice spring weekends? I, I was I was on my ambulance driving last night. I nice. drove to my first call. That was exciting. Wait, so you just started actually driving? Yeah. Like you're actually I'm behind the, the wheel. With the patient. Hell or I'm yeah. in the front making all kinds of calls. And I was doing what, that last night wait, as well. Wait, what sort of calls are you making? Are you like, like what type what of calls do? are you making? Like what you like, do with this patient? Like, is oh the person my God. driving? Is the person driving like in charge of the crew? No, the crew chief is in charge of the crew. There's a crew okay. chief, a driver, and an attendant on each. Okay, uh, oh, that's how we do it anyway. Uh, sure. And occasionally we don't have an attendant, but usually it's like three people. Attendant okay. is typically like the person who does like a lot of the patient care, who is like, all right, I'm going to splint that. All right, I'm going to take your vital signs. The crew chief is in charge of the crew and also makes like the calls. Like, should we do this or this for this person? They're like the team captain. They're yeah, like, exactly. they're like the, like the, the kind of big over, right. Okay. And then the, and the driver, driver is in, in charge of the equipment, like Ooh. the ambulance itself and the equipment, that kind of thing. So I'm training to be a driver. I have, I am a crew chief normally or an attendant normally 
now I'm training to be a driver. I drove to my first call and I was definitely going like 30 miles an hour because <laughs> that thing is scary. But with lights and sirens, so watch out. Friends. Yeah, I bet that's I bet that's a whole trip. Patrick, <laughs> did you save anybody's life this weekend? I mean, uh, you know, mental health is important. And so you yes. got to get out in your relationships and yes. go see a quiet place for your mental health because you haven't <laughs> nice. seen a horror film in a, in a movie theater in a while. And so, nice. How'd that go? Oh, it's excellent. It is, it is, uh, uh, is does, I thought it was worth it the hype. Up? It lives up to the hype, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I, it, uh, I, and I will say, uh, I know a lot of people uh, uh, kind of generally write off horror movies, not because they don't think they could be like good entertainment movies, but they're like, they don't like being scared. Like that's not part of like their entertainment Repertoire. Sure. I would. I would. Um. And I don't. One hundred percent get that, and I, I respect that. Um. But I would classify a Quiet Place as uh, more as a thriller. Um. It's not gory. It's not okay. violent. I mean, there are allusions to violence. There is occasional blood, but it is not something that like revels in in that in the way that a lot of others. And it's not a. Not, it's not a jump scare movie either that is not to say there aren't moments that like kind of pop at you but it is it is it is really uh more of a, a thriller um in which the mm-hmm. tension is derived from like v- very obvious things like you you know what's going to happen and then it happens and then it's just <laughs> really tense when it happens and, and the movie shows just an incredible commitment to its uh to its bit of uh like the characters don't really talk. They one of the one of the daughters uh, uh, of Josh Krasinski's uh, character in the film is uh, deaf, and they actually cast like a someone who's deaf, uh, which that's was cool. like uh, not something you can like advertise in the movie, but like right. I read about it, and like that's cool that like they were you know committed enough to to make sure that um, like they found someone that was like very appropriate for that role. So yeah, it's really good. And um, but if you like thrillers and and you're worried that that movie is a horror horror movie, like it is not. Like I think uh, it actually. Um, it's part of the reason I think it's been as popular as it has is because it fits a, a much broader sort of demographic. But yeah, I liked it a lot. Awesome. I still want to see that. It's, it has been, it, you know, I saw a trailer for it probably ahead of Annihilation or something else. I was like, ah, I should go see that. And it's then... a good theater movie. Like I watch okay. most movies at home. Um, I, the only time that my uh, – we're lucky that my uh, my uh, my mom who watches uh, my kid twice a week uh, lives near a movie theater. And so like we actually get to see like – a decent number of films in a theater oh. because we just have a convenient setup for like dropping her off. Mm. She goes to bed. We can go see a movie quick and like be back on the road at nine o'clock um, and go home. But uh, we generally only like, go see like like Marvel movies and stuff like that. That feels like like a real justified use of like a big ass screen um, and asking right. my mom like for the a, spectacle is, is yeah meaningful. like yeah the spectacle is really meaningful. I mean like I also think I, I have a projector at home, so it's like I can get some of that spectacle in in my own home. But a quiet place like. Because the the sound like the one thing that my uh, house doesn't have is like a particularly good speaker setup. Like that's like a project I'd like to get to at some point. Mm-hmm. But I want to spend mm-hmm. the kind of money if I'm going to do it. Like I want to do it, and I yeah. I can't I can't justify that at the moment. But yeah. this is a movie where like the the sound design is unbelievably good. So I it, less for the picture, more for the sound. Um, it's worth seeing. Um, uh, on the big screen and also because audiences are fun with i was gonna movie. ask about that like if if the audience experience is is a big part of that for you especially for this movie uh yes and no uh it's uh, i think a quiet place is pg-13 which is usually not the movie i want to see yeah, uh, sure. in a theater because right uh i was an asshole teenager and um and these days like especially with phones and everything like it's just there are a lot more ways for kids to be distracted and that's less to dunk on teenagers as much as like I get, like, one moment to, like, have a fresh exp- – like, <laughs> just, like, horror as a genre, like, there's a lot, too, like, the first experience of a thing. Yeah. Um, 
just by the nature of the, of the medium um, or, or the genre. And uh, yeah, so it's like I, my wife and I have gone to enough. The movie, the theater we go to um, specifically caters to like near a high school. And so there's just a lot of high school students there. And so if it's a PG-13 horror film, we, t- we tend to not go to them or wait a couple of weeks when we can get um, uh, the theater more to ourselves. But this one, we had a really good crowd and it, the, the gasps and the way that it's a movie about sound and people not talking. And the right. audience like totally plays along with that yeah. because right. you also don't want to make any sound. It's, it's good. So anyway, awesome. That, nice. Here's my end of the podcast recommendation. Acquired. I guess that's yeah. Your waypoint is already is already. I have set another one. I have another one. But this all right, year, go. Just, put, put that one in your back too. pocket. Yeah. There you go. Um. So no, you didn't save lives, is what you're telling me. No, I didn't. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Not if, even if the barometer of like how I spend my weekends is relative to the good that Danielle Riendo puts into the world. <laughs> and boy, I'm fucking up on a daily basis. Yeah. Fair. Same. Sorry. Uh, I play a lot of Into the Breach too, so don't feel bad. All right. Well, there we go. Um. I mean, speaking wow, of Max, well, that's. That's why it's so difficult to drive at 30 miles an hour with sirens because you're doing into the breach turns with a random squad. Because like, exactly. hmm, so where should I put this ice mech? I don't know. Um, uh, like, I'm I played, crashing uh, in the back over here. I, I played my own mech game. I played a little bit more Battletech. I'll talk a little bit about that. That'll be my waypoint at the end of the show. We're getting all those out of the way up top. I'll save that for then, and then Rob and I will probably dig deeper into it uh, at some at some future, uh, probably for like a waypoint article read, because I want to go deep in it with, with Rob, because he has put in probably as much time as I have, if not more. Um, and that was fun. And then I also played a little bit of a game called... Um, the Swords of Ditto, uh, which is Devolver's latest uh, published game. It's by a studio called One Bit Beyond. Uh, I saw it originally last E3, uh, and it comes out this week. I want to say it comes out on the 24th, tomorrow. Um, uh, it is a kind of very cartoonish roguelike, but like roguelike is... It's 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 a it's an action uh, adventure game in the or like an action RPG in, in the vibe of something like uh, Link, Link to the, the Past. past. Yeah, like it's like very, very it's much very like it's the the art of um, Adventure Time adventure or something. Time or uh, uh, what's the uh, Stephen the Uni- Stephen Stephen Universe? Oh, Stephen Universe. Yeah, yeah, a little little Stephen University for but sure. It's, and it's and like it cannot understate like how good like the animation and it's fantastic it's i mean the bright the, and the colorful cliche, the, the cliche of it looks like a, a like a like a like you're playing a cartoon is like pretty dead because like that's been used like tried it out all right. the time but right I, and i've played a lot of those games and seen a lot of those games and even my like first couple minutes with swords of ditto was like a very like oh shit like this is just like it the genuinely looks like that it genuinely does it, it is a really striking uh game and I think the premise is really strong. So, you know, when I when I got this demo at E3, it was at the Devolver. I mean, it wasn't at E3. It was at the Devolver parking lot <laughs> across from E3. The, those, the, you know, Devolver and uh, the, the, the ESA. No, not the ESA. The, uh, is the ESA who does E3? What's the company behind yeah. E3? Yeah, okay. My, my brain is not so addled. I'm technically on a sick day. Uh, yeah. So, so oh, I Podcast apologize in advance. on your sick day. Yeah, well, uh, and so you, um, the, the, the picture that I got at the Devolver kind of uh, parking lot for this game was that it's a sort of generational take on Link to the Past with some roguelike elements. You uh, arrive to this island that has like a town called Ditto in the middle of the, the, the island, and all around the island there are uh, enemies or monsters that have been, you know, the, the island's being overrun by monsters under the control or influence of a, a uh, an evil, like, witch. warlock or witch, yeah, witch, named, named Mormo. Um, uh, and you uh, go into the, these temples uh, that have special items in them, very similar to like the boomerang or bombs or gr- the the hook shot or whatever from Zelda. 
um, and those will help you, you know, solve puzzles, and then you eventually go and you fight Mormo, and if you win, the world, or if you win or, win or lose, the world changes. If you lose, the, the you jump ahead a generation, you become the next Sword of Ditto, and the world has gotten darker because Mormo has been able to advance her plans. Uh, but if you win, things become a little bit brighter, and the, the, you kind of push back the darkness, and the, the entire world becomes uh, a little more colorful and a little bit more at peace. But I believe that the pitch was also, like, it also gets harder because you're, you know, getting, you're winning more and more, and Mormo is kind of needing to push back a little bit harder. Um, and it, the, the entire pitch is around this notion of, like, oh, you're making changes across you know, across multiple playthroughs, um, kind of suggesting the sort of, the sort of uh, arc or um, uh, structure of something like Rogue Legacy or Sheer and the Wanderer or, like, other sorts of roguelikes that are not just one and done, but that they have some sort of like more than Spelunky even or more than Binding of Isaac where you're unlocking items that might show up or information that might show up or whatever but actually changing the game world Um, uh, a little bit of what you talked about of wanting from Breath of the Wild was that at the end it would have been nice to see some of the consequences of your actions and the whole premise of like a new game in the Legend of Zelda series is often, you know, it, you know, if you buy into the, the, the timeline theory, but even what they generally I, propose, <laughs> um, is, is that, like, the start of every new adventure is a new generation, right? Like, right. X number of years, you know, presumably, you know, dozens if not hundreds of years have passed, and, you know, hope is now needed once again, blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. And, and this, this game says rather than... now... Right, they, yeah. everything changes, yeah, totally. Yeah, and, like, rather than that being something that takes place... In the next game, it's like, well, if that's built in to each death, and I, I, I knew precious little about this game other than, oh, it looks like Zelda. Oh, it's got cool art. And so, uh, the, when I died uh, the first time, I played like maybe like an, an hour, and then I got to um, what they call the toy dungeons. Like, it is kind of funny. They just say like, yo, like the <laughs> there's uh-huh. like a toy aesthetic that's going on in the game. Like stickers are these um, sort of like bonuses that you can uh, equip on your character. So you get like 5% like armor bonus or 20% right. against uh, poison, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then to find, yeah, these like special items, you go into these toy dungeons and I fought the boss at the end of that dungeon died. And uh, then like, yeah, it's just, it spawns you in a hundred years later or whatever. And then you go and pick up uh, your sword and you start and start over fresh again. and yeah. well f- fresh ish because you're the the one thing that does carry over at least in so far that I've discovered uh, is that the your level so it's like if you have leveled up to level four when you pick up the sword on the next quest like you will start at level four so you, right. you're not starting from scratch in terms of like health and and attack power right um, but the That's game does good. scale with you so, a little bit. So it's not like you could just sit in the first area and like grind for um a hundred hours and then just like right. roll well, through the game. There is like a time limit too, because like every the whole setup is like in four days Mormo will arrive. Oh you mean Majora's and, mask. Yeah, I was Yes, exactly, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and and okay, like you have to be ready for that fight by then, which means you need to have done the toy dungeons to get the toys are the the like items, right? So like you know, there's a vinyl record that you can get that you can throw that bounces off off of walls, and so maybe you need to like throw it through a portal so that it bounces from this side of the room to hit a switch on the other side or whatever, right? Um, and uh, you know, there there's all sorts of like little little things like that, and those are all really neat. I will say that 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 general structure, the thing of like, oh, you level up and you keep leveling up from game to game might be something that at first blush runs against what I wanted from this game, though, where um, 
like okay so here's the, the very beginning of this game and my, my hope is that this i lose this feeling as i keep playing and i level up more and more but like i got to the first dungeon uh and it's like oh well you're level one you need to be level two to open up this dungeon it's like okay well how far do i have to go to for level two and it was a lot. It was like I had to grind for 10 minutes to get from level one to level two. Uh, or it was like, or, or you can go help people. But I didn't find anybody with like side quests to go help. Uh, and so it was this weird thing of like, okay, I've, I've, I'm grinding for 10 minutes. And like, all right, I'm, I'm done with that. And I'm going to launch the game again. Or I die in, the, in that dungeon. And I get to start over. Uh, and, and now, yeah, I'm like level one. I'm level 2.1 or whatever. Two plus a little bit of uh, XP that I have left. So yeah, I can go back to that first dungeon. But like... It doesn't. It didn't give me the feeling of starting fresh. Like I, what I had expected was sort of like I'm going to go through this run, and when I die, I die, and then the next time I'll be able to level up a whole new character and start over. You know what I mean? And instead, it's just this kind of like constant, ongoing progress, which doesn't really work for the generational thing for me right now. Again, five hours from now, you know, I'm like eighty, ninety, you know, minutes in or something. It 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 doesn't feel like it's hitting the promise and it's a little slower than i thought it would be well and i'll say like the game doesn't really explain a lot any of, of the pitch that we just made <laughs> right okay. like so the game like it doesn't um and, and to a i think greatly to a fault does yes. not tutorialize enough of like what is actually happening mechanically in the game like it's one thing to be obtuse because like hey like we want players to like discover on their own and then there's what this right. game does which is just to like like it has a tutorial character who like makes jokes about being a tutorial character and then so what happens is like i um you know i heard it was kind of roguelike and there was maybe some randomization to parts of the world but like it just wasn't clear to me what any of that was and i was like okay well i guess i'll discover that stuff as i go along or um it'll explain some of it um and then i uh die um at the the first boss like the boss just kicks my ass like i just did not have uh, a prayer um uh-huh. and it's not like you get sent back to the start of the dungeon and then like well maybe give it another go like maybe you should learn like the pattern or the like what's going on with this <laughs> then i mean like i walked in got my ass kicked died and then it just like boots you back to the start and there's no the little tutorial character doesn't come up to you and go hey here's what happened like right like even if it's like meta moment like like hey player like right mm, or even a joke you find some way to like speak to the to the right, player well, so, like what, and, and instead what happens is, like, you just get spawned back into the world again. It says, hey, go pick up your sword, and then just do it again. Do it again. And right. So, and it doesn't talk about any of the ways the world has changed. It doesn't deliver on the stuff that doesn't was tell you you've lost your, those side quests that, that I found. I found two of them in my first run. Those are just gone, like, which makes huh. sense because it's 100 years later. But right, like, sure. I, it was frustrating because, uh, like, so the, the this uh, what does change is the – like the sh- the geography of the overworld that you're right. dealing with, and so uh, in my my first run, whether through luck or because this the game is structured, uh, the the first uh, toy dungeon was not very far. Like it was a few right. screens over, and I could just make my way there. Oh, that was definitely not the fucking case with the second one, where it was like a full thirty minutes of like going through a ton of screens. Right, and I get there, and it's not like you walk in, and it's like oh the. The last hero was here, and he's already solved the puzzles for you. So just like make your way no. to the boss. To no, you have to solve a whole other dungeon. Did again. you get the same dungeon the second time? No, it's a completely it's a different, different dungeon. Yeah. So it's so not even like thing. I can use the previous knowledge to just like right. knock it out. Instead, it's like so I've got to go through a whole other dungeon, and I have no knowledge from that previous boss fight. Or even is it the same boss? Is this going to be like Binding of Isaac, where the bosses are random? I don't know. Like and. It set up a hill that I was all of a sudden was like, if this was just a normal Zelda game, or like normal by <laughs> like what I like consider like a, you know a general Zelda structure, I might have 
wanted to keep playing this. But when all of a sudden I was like, am I really going to spend 30 minutes going through a puzzle to walk into a boss room, get my ass kicked, and then do it over again? Because they scale the level requirement to get into right. the dungeon. So there's like this little uh, circle out in front, and it is literally just a level uh, uh, signifier. And I, it's it like was two or three. Yeah, it required or two the first time around. And then when I spawned back into the world, obviously leveled up a little more, it was three. And so it was like the strategy then, like I need to go spend an hour grinding and hope that that number doesn't go up in that instant. I mean, like it just, that stuff really, or am I, is this the game telling me, Hey, you need to go do a bunch of other stuff and then like come back and maybe I'll get a superpower that like, I don't know, lets me run a, a boss. Cause they imply in the game, like, Hey, you can like, you'll be able to play with time and like do some other stuff. I'm like, Oh, maybe that means yeah. I, I'm like going to this toy dungeon. I, that stuff really frustrated me. And right. I, I almost felt myself immediately bouncing off the game in a way that I didn't want to. But yeah, the game was clear. There's doing... so much here that is like it's really cool looking, and I love the idea of a sort of like proc gen Legend of Zelda Link to the Past style thing. And generational storytelling is always a really fucking cool thing that we don't get enough of in video games. So I want to support it, but like it does such a bad job of showing you what the cool shit is. If it's there at all in play, do you know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. it, it, so the, I mean, the other thing briefly before we, you know, I don't want to just dunk on this game for an hour, you know, Um, we're we're both about 90 minutes in like, yes. I mean, I'll say like, rough bad, like it's a, it's a pretty poor, like first 90 minutes. And if we're both bouncing off it and it sounds like, like relatively similar ways, like that's, that's not great. Uh, that said, like there's enough here that like, I'm going to, I want to put in like four or five hours. And if that's where I still fall, then, then so be it. And maybe the game's not for me. Right. I'm really curious about what the, like overall, how the structure. So again, the, the overworld is, is proc gen, right? Um, it is like, or, or, or something, right? It changes. Maybe there's a set of, of overworld maps that it shuffles. I don't know, but, but it seems like there are different rooms, so to speak, in the overworld. And then you find different temples in different orders. You find different to- toy temples, uh, you know, each t- toy dungeons each time. So the first time through, I got a toy that was like really boring. Um, I got this like drone that could well, explode. That doesn't carry over? I didn't, I don't think I had that the second time. Uh, I died. I didn't finish that. I don't. I didn't finish that. I died, so okay. I didn't finish that dungeon. All I right. don't think I came back with that toy with me. But my point is, like, you know, the structure of a Zelda game, obviously, like Danielle, you can speak to this. You watch a lot of speedrunners. People I can sure sequence do. break, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And like, go like, oh, I'm not going to go get the hook shot at this point. I'm going to go get the boomerang or whatever. Yeah. Um, but. In, for most players, when they when they go through a contemporary, you know, a, a, a you know, Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time forward Zelda game, or even a Link to the Past forward Zelda game, they will go through it in a pretty much prescribed order in which you under the, the designers know which uh, tools you get when. Yep. And this game obviously isn't going to run into any problems where you have to have a certain tool to progress that you don't have yet because it knows what tools you have. But what it doesn't do is like, it didn't, I didn't get a cool one first. I got a really <laughs> boring one. I flew this shitty drone around and then like it could bump into things and do minimal damage or I could hold down the button to do like meaningful damage and it would like eventually blow up. But it was just corny. Like it was just like, I've seen cool toys. You know, there's like a laser ring. There's like the, the vinyl records that you kind of throw and bounce around and there's a you know all sorts of other neat toys that you can play with uh in the game both literal and figurative 
but it didn't give me i got the, i got the bad one out the gate and it's one of those things like oh man i hope that the the kind of random nature of of what players see in order doesn't just turn a lot of players off the way it almost did for me so we'll see i'm gonna put some more time into it um uh, Daniel, I think you should check it out. I really oh, do yeah. feel like it's something both in style and structure, you know, style and, and just gameplay is very much a Daniel Riendo joint. Yeah. Um, and I really want to know what your what your perspective is on it for sure. I'm super, super interested in this. Even even hearing about the flaws, uh, I am right. definitely interested in, in you know. I've, I've had a weird streak with Devolver lately, but a lot of it actually has not <laughs> been bad. A lot of it actually has been good. I love, I, you know, I loved Minute, obviously. I right. think we all did. So yeah, yeah. I'm super, it's super, super funny to see this after Minute is what I'll say. Yeah, totally. Like, I was going to ask, like, this seems like anti-Minute in a lot of ways. In weird right, ways, maybe. Right, Like, it's really, it's, and, I, and that, that can be a totally okay thing, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Minute was really interested in brevity and in, like, you know, what you can do with a, with a repeated pattern. Whereas this is very much about scale and about, like, randomization and not about just, like, memorizing a single thing. So, 100 years instead of 60 seconds, you know, Yeah, right? exactly. There's, <laughs> yeah, there it is. There's your deck. Cool. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. There we go. Well, Perfect. and, like, uh, just before we recorded this, there was uh, one of the writers on the game did this big, like, tweet storm uh, about uh, the sort of, like, story that they're trying to tell in the game that, like, got me, like, <laughs> like super interested, like, brought me off the, the the ledge i was on i was like okay i'm gonna put some more time in uh, in a way that the, the game didn't didn't necessarily do but um they were you know talking about the fact that um in in the game uh you will eventually start coming across these like tablets that like start uh laying out the the history of like the swords that are like they've really it sounds like thought through like a really long mythology for um this world that you get some like small indications of when you first start poking around the game but um it sounds like uh like so for example you're going to find like it's something like 64 tablets and they originally sort of like blocked off when you could get certain tablets cuz it might like spoil huge parts of like the larger mythology and instead they decided to kind of play into the roguelike like right. nature in the story and saying like well some players might get that really rare drop that like <laughs> gives you like a big impression of like what's going on here and then that's just we're just going to see how players respond and on top of that they revealed some of the like larger meta structure of the game which is that beating the game is not just beating the wizard mormo like all that does is just make the world better and you're like pushing against like a cycle and that they're like the quote-unquote true ending um is related to like what do you do about cycles and like that that all, i was like oh shit they're like that sounds like re the idea that like so like a big zelda fan would think about cycles and that would make, uh -huh. a, make a game whose storytelling is is like explicitly about cycles and breaking cycles of like oppression and stuff i was like that woo, okay like all right like okay <laughs> you're pulling me back in and so and i and i also wonder if like the things we call flaws maybe they're strengths once you like get over a certain you know uh hill with the game and i just i don't feel like i've gotten there yet and uh I'm, I'm hopeful that I, I I I am because like the game's so pretty and the mechanics are actually like feel really good. Um, that I yeah I, I want to spend more time with it. I just I'll have to see if it'll <laughs> we'll have to see if it'll let me. I think it also has local co-op, so maybe we should look into that. Mm. Maybe Danielle okay. oh, we'll see yeah. how that is. I wish it had online multiplayer because because that would be that's mm. traditionally how I play multiplayer games. But you know what? We have an office in the studio and, and can look into that at least. You know. Yeah. So maybe we should spend some time with it and, and see if we can wrap around and do a stream or something. Um, all right, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and talk more about some, some video games. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, we are back. Uh, on Friday, we spent some time playing a, a bunch of stuff. Uh, we did kind of a – it was one of those weeks where, like, it snuck up on us, and then we were like, oh, shit, there's a billion things to stream all at once. Uh, luckily, we all were able to – All on 420. All on 420. landed that uh-huh. way. It all yeah. just kind of landed on our lap like that. <laughs> um, and so we did a, a big stream. We did some Battletech. We played some uh, Spy Party, which was the first time I'd ever played Spy Party. Um, is that in early access now on Steam? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh spy party is cool as hell uh it is like a a kind of social manipulation like competitive game in which do you want to set it up like how how yeah i guess right so like (laughs) uh, like the high what's the high level the high level is like one of you is a sniper and the other one is a spy at a party a spy party (laughs) um and the spy has a bunch of goals right and those goals are things like hey switch this statue with with a fake or um, plan a bug on one of the members of the of the party, or um, I'm trying to think of something else that's like super obvious. What was something that's really obvious? <laughs> flirt, but the sniper can't really see the flirting. Is the thing okay? Um, it was bugging, like, uh, trying bugging to bug the bug yeah. the ambassador. Yeah, bugging the ambassador um, is probably the easiest one, right? The most obvious one. You end, up, you end one. up seeing, like you know, basically the the person who's the the uh, the spy is trying to look like an NPC, and so you're trying right. to do like robotic. Sort of like you know, go from one side to the other, and then what is the the tells are you're, you know you're trying to you're trying to obscure those tells, and so like when you're trying to bug the ambassador, like your hand does a pretty unique motion right uh, next to a character, and so as the spy or, or as the uh, as the sniper, sniper who's trying you're to trying to pick the... up on that, yeah, right, exactly. And there's all sorts of other little tells, right? So like there's a there's a clock that's counting down for the spy where they have to com- complete a number of like missions that they have uh, assigned to them. And uh, as the clock ticks down, one of the things the spy can do is, like, add more time to their mission by going and doing something very obvious, like checking their watch or their phone at a window. Uh, and then, like, the timer will go up, and if the sniper realizes that it just went up, and they can see the, the, the you know, uh, one of the NPCs, one of the characters at the party, checking their watch at the window, mm. they can be pretty sure it <laughs> is the spy. Um, oh, you know what my favorite one is? My favorite one is that there is uh, there are two characters that are marked for the sniper as being potential double agents, um, and the the spy has to like deliver information to them or make contact with the double agent. And when they do, there is just a voiceover that goes banana bread. <laughs> And uh, and at that moment, the sniper has to stop whatever else they're doing and be like, oh, shit, who is talking to one of the, the suspected double agents right now? Because then I'll know those are the only people that it could be. Uh, and anybody who's not talking to a double agent, I can mark those and kind of like you can kind of like turn them into silhouettes. You can low light them so that, you know, it can't be them because they weren't talking to the double agent at the time. It's a really clever game. One, obviously, one player plays the, the spy, one player plays the sniper. It's been in circles for years, but this is the first time I sat down to actually play it. I know, I know, Danielle, it was the first time, was the first time you saw it too? Yeah, it was. I mean, it's one of those things I've been following it for years, but not, never actually had my hands on it. And I, I guess I haven't still, but you know, I was there. Feel like I was participating in the anxiety that was playing Spy Party, which is I consistently fun. thought that you and Danica saw shit I didn't see, like constantly. I mean, I, I, 
there were a couple of times we did, but it was only because like when you're in a group, you have like, yeah. the sort of luxury of like, I could focus on two things and she could focus right. on two things and you had to look at 10 things. So it was, right. you know, I just kept it's watching a- for that watch for the watch uh, animation right. and, and the and sort guess, of like yeah, the if, timer changing. If you're focused on that, you'll find it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, the one that I loved the most was the statue switching. Yes. So there's a one of the goals that the spy can have is like um, they have to take one of the statues and switch it out with another statue. And the way that looks is like they pick up a statue and then it just like magically transforms into a different one uh, and they put it back down. And you'll know it happens, one, if you see it happening, obviously. But also you can just memorize as the sniper what the statues are and what order they're in. So it's like the Venus of Willendorf. Uh, I think it's like a bust of Shakespeare or something, and then uh, like a, a, the Maltese Falcon, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's like, okay, you know, Falcon, Venus, like bust. And like you memorize that. And then the thing that caught me off guard, Patrick, you beat me like right away on the first or second time, was you changed it. And in my head, I'd gotten so confused and I couldn't remember the order of the statues. And I couldn't be sure if they'd actually changed or not. Uh, it's a really good game for self doubt. <laughs> Uh, yeah, which is why I don't think I'm ever going to play it again because I didn't really have fun <laughs> playing it. I, I, I didn't. Like, I found that it made me like incredibly anxious. It was one thing to like do it in front of a stream too. Right. Maybe that was like not like it was not. I, I'm not a typically anxious person, but like I didn't particularly enjoy playing the game. Right. Like I think it's really well made. Like I think it's mm-hmm. super cool. Um, but and maybe and maybe I would feel better if I had like a better like a handle because we're like learning a lot of the mechanics like oh I basically, yeah i basically got fucked on one of the rounds because i didn't realize i had to put a book away <laughs> right that part yeah. of it sucked that part of it definitely there was definitely like one of those things of like oh there are a lot of micro rules here that are not gotten into in any way and so it's hard to even know like whether or not i'm fucking up or whether i like I, I won for the same reason which is i put a book away and didn't realize i i that was the way that you moved the <laughs> microfiche or whatever it was you know <laughs> Um, so uh, it's neat. It's worth checking out at least. Uh, you can watch that stream. That stream is up on youtubecom waypointvice uh, or will be. It will be. It probably. will be. I think it's it going up be. today. In the next, I think it's either up today or tomorrow. Okay. So so try to try to take a look at that. Um, we had we had a good time, but like very stressful. Like one of the most <laughs> stressful on stream games I think I've ever played. So yeah, yeah. Um, I was sweating for you, and that really I, says something. <laughs> I appreciate it. I was sweating during the Nintendo Labo portion oh, of that yeah. stream. Different reason, uh, though. <laughs> yeah, different reason. Mostly you and Danica putting on your your, your like fucking Rhode Island auntie voices and just just <laughs> torturing me as I tried to fish with a cardboard fishing rod. Oh, that was um, that was a lot of fun. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Nintendo Labo since you probably have the most experience yeah, with it at this point? For sure. And I've actually made the same two things twice, which is kind of funny. <laughs> uh, with those are the exact uh, – the RC car, which is like the simplest of all Nintendo Labo. And if you don't know what Nintendo Labo is, the high-level thing is you make cardboard sort of figures and then you get to play mini games with them using your Switch, basically. Right. Um, so the RC car is very, very simple. It's just a little kind of tiny cardboard car and you kind of put two – little Joy-Cons in it, and you can drive it by sort of manipulating the Joy-Cons, which is pretty cool, actually. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, but the more involved project that we did, of course, was the fishing rod, uh, which is more, you know, they give you sort of a, a time uh, estimate on how long it'll take. I think the fishing rod is like 90 minutes to two hours. It's really like an hour. Like, if, especially if you have two people making the thing or three people making the thing. Cause like two can... people making it and one person, like, advancing the instructions yes. on the screen. Exactly, because that's the actual slowest part. That's the actual pain point with Lavo is how slowly the instructions go, which I understand this is made for children. It's right. just 
you know, look, if you're a Lego master or are a Lego master, you're not going to need, you're not going to need three hours to put the fishing rod together. But I'm just saying, uh, building it is a lot of fun. I actually really, really enjoy it and find it incredibly satisfying from that, again, like Lego kid point of view. It feels great to put together little cardboard things. And there's a lot of little articulation points that are very, very Mm -hmm. satisfying to play with. The fishing rod, for example, has like a click with each rotation of the rod itself. It actually sort of has a little click. Oh, it's so good. Uh, Really, really fun to kind of put together. It's fun to do tactile things. It's fun to put things together in general. Uh, And then, of course, there's the mini game. Uh, The fishing mini game, I've, I've played it. I think it's fine. Uh, but I do think the uh, inherent fun of Lobo, at least at, at this level, maybe there's going to be like a meadow with Lobo later on, uh, <laughs> which I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, because you can actually create other things uh, using sort of like a very basic programming Wait, did, Have you messed with that stuff at all? No, I've only seen it, but I I mm. plan on messing with it. Let's put it that way. There will be a mess made with Lobo. Oh, okay. That'd be great. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's, it, I think the fun of it right now is building things. Uh, I think like the mini games are totally cool and fun. Uh, I know Austin, you played the fishing mini game, and you sure I did get a foot uh, related fish, which was I got a football. I got a football fish, and <laughs> I'm still mad about it. Um, uh, I actually really love how it feels. Like there was Good, definitely yeah. I didn't expect the tension on the line to feel directional the way it did. Sure. Um, or honestly, for there to feel like there was tension at all. But there was. And so that was cool. Um, I'm curious for how the rest of those things are. Uh, I suspect I suspect that my, my shoulders are too broad for the robot, unfortunately. Aww. That's my guess. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's, that's how it goes. Um, but I'd still like to see what the rest of those minigames are all about, basically. Uh, I think it's, I, you know, I'm always going to support nintendo doing weird experiments like this um and especially stuff that does have that kind of more open-ended or or not open source at all but like stuff that encourages players to figure out and play with and program and make their own shit because that ends up being a lot of my favorite stuff that comes out of of nintendo things like whether that's mario maker uh or or um there was something else i just had in mind and i've already lost oh oh even just like the way the wii worked uh you know encourage lots of people to use the Wii motion controller as a as a input device in new ways and stuff like that is just like Nintendo is is uniquely poised to take those chances on the in the market uh and it's important that they do because other people aren't incentivized to you know like I we've seen what happens when Microsoft launches Kinect or when Sony tries to do move controllers those yeah. projects, uh, one, they just like don't have the right vibe. Nintendo Labo is so joyful and so um, you know uh, just energetic in a way that those <laughs> other products just never are. Um, it feels it feels genuine, uh, and partly because it's like big, brightly colored uh, cardboard, and partly because it has like great Nintendo menu music all yes. throughout. Uh, and very the, funky. the tutorials, <laughs> yeah, super funky, uh, over long tutorials, but also, so also very Nintendo-y, uh, um, <laughs> but, but also very like in that mode of like, oh yeah, we're hanging out, we're playing with toys. Um, I, I, I sometimes think that Nintendo understands that toys are fun and that not everything good has to be a game ass game. Do you yeah, know? Um, yes. and, and that comes from a position of security in the medium, not a position of like, uh, a feeling that like there's something that needs to be protected or upheld or that like we need prestige like toys are, are valuable things and it's cool to make those and it's cool to have like the experience of building Nintendo Labo be a fun and, and enjoyable experience 
yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious how the rest of those things are. I'd love to make some time to to maybe build one or two of those things. Um, awesome. Anybody playing anything else, or can we go into the question bucket? We can take a dip. Let's take I a just dip. Wanna, I just want to say, just as an aside, Please. um, fuck Quantic Dream. <laughs> yeah, you know what? We should have that. Do you want to talk about that real quick, Patrick? That's yeah. no, no need to make it an aside. Um. Uh. Yeah. So there was a, a series of reports that we uh just at least touched on uh, and discussed uh a, a number of months back, uh, which a I think a trio of French publications um uh, collaborated, um or at least two of the publications collaborated. I'm mixed on the exact uh, specifics there. Uh, about the the workplace uh at Quantic Dream, the developers of Heavy Rain, um and the, the upcoming uh, Detroit Become Human, which comes out in just a couple of weeks. Um. I guess there's a demo up on PSN, like right now or tomorrow. Yeah, something. Um, like that. And uh, yeah, like you know, insinuated there were, uh, you know, other than like you know your traditional like cynically traditional like long hours and things like that, um, like a like a history of misogyny and and racism and like really like uh, jokes and asides that uh, really really went went over the line and made it an uncomfortable place to work and. Uh, apparently that that really well one that really got Quantic Dream and David Cage uh, specifically to like publicly push back on those reports. Um, and then uh, there's this really fascinating uh, story about Kotaku, which is where this originally broke because it's not like this went out in a press release. Um, in which Jason Schreier, who was off doing some press for the French version of his uh book, uh, Blood Sweat Pick Blood Sweat and Pixels, Blood let me look. Blood yes. Sweat and Pixels, yeah, and Pixels. I didn't know if there was an and. I just looked it on my shelf. You just looked over um, the yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just looked over the. <laughs> Um, and he was supposed to do some sort of like, you know, uh, uh, a Q&A with this uh, French journalist and they couldn't show up because they were in court. And it turns out they were in court because they were being, uh, are about, are, are being or about to be sued by Quantic Dream. And then Kotaku went coincidentally to a press <laughs> event for, uh, for, uh, for Detroit Become Human in New York. And before Sony, uh, PR could, uh, probably understandably on their side, uh, shut it down, um, confirmed with David Cage that he was uh, suing those journalists. So that is currently, I believe two of the publications are being sued, and one of the publications uh, has so far not seen legal paperwork. Um, But uh, yeah, so basically, as far as um, Jason Cattell, he noted this earlier, and as far as I can recall, this is really the first instance in which a uh, a major video game developer slash publisher is uh, suing... um, uh, based on uh, the reporting of uh, a series of journalists, there, right. there is, I'll note, um, uh, you know, Jim Sterling, a games critic who used to be at Destructoid, now on YouTube, he was uh, famously uh, sued by this really crummy garbage uh, uh, company. Um, and, I mean, had to deal with that, had to get a lawyer and dispute that and shoot that thing down. Um, but that was a case of him sort of dragging those games from a critic's perspective and that person trying to abuse the legal system. Um, this Not is, just like uh, reporting that is being yes. held up yeah, and which being still accused bad. of being defamation. No, right. no world am I going to argue what uh, uh, that studio did to Jim Sterling is at all acceptable. Sure, sure, it sure. Was, it was also bad on the merits. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, but this is this is also a, an extraordinary uh, act that, uh, yeah, I, it's fucked. It's bad. It's yeah. bad. It's a very and, – and also – strategically let me just point yeah. out like pro like probably not great like at the same time they have all these like previews going up which like cursory look were like rather positive about right. the game um and then at the same time you are suing a, a journalist um only weeks away days away from like probably review copies of that game like landing in people's laps like just 
just a bad PR strategy is to try and shit on like the very people that you're hoping are going to like go out there and praise your game well, because and not you know just, not David just, Cage is a guy that reads the reviews. Right. Not just are doing the thing, but like Cage himself at the event says, quote, we're suing their journalists. The Sony yeah. PR handler couldn't shut him down quick enough for him Come not on. to say out loud, we're suing their journalists, which is like it's like top level mismanagement of how to do that it's so bad and also just fuck off like there is a degree i mean listen like i i there should be recourse for if uh if yeah, slander and defamation slander and defamation and- laws should be in existence for for good reason there are absolutely you know tabloids that will prey upon uh you know uh misdirecting and deceiving their readership and creating uh, complete bullshit and accusing people of things and leaning on on unsubstantiated rumors. And, and like there should be lines in the sand to make sure that even that readers are protected from such shitty journal from such sh- shitty uh, so-called journalists. Right? right. Absolutely. But there's a, a huge distinction between that and then like this, uh, these stories about um, Quantic Dream, which were undertaken uh, as a like a, a partnership between three different media outlets, uh, ranging from you know an o- online sites like Media Part and Canard PC to like Le Monde, which is one of the most you know uh, well regarded papers in the world. They're not this, random blogs, right? Like it's right. Not, not even that a random blog couldn't couldn't break, a break story that news, like right? This, totally. But, like there's uh there, like there's reason to there's well, there's reason based on David Cage's history, the way he talks. Um, right. The way he has uh, 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 spoken about various subjects to look at this with some measure of suspicion. The content of his games, even. Do you know what I yes. mean? Like there is there. This it's funny because he says like, look at the con, look at my content to see how my heart is. You know, like I make games with Jesse Williams. I make games with uh, um, what is her name from from. The, oh, from, uh, uh, um, 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 not um, Elliot Page. No, that's wrong. No, nope, uh, that's uh, wrong. Um. <laughs> um Mm. This is gonna kill me. Mm. I can't believe this is this is. We're not allowed to Google it. Ellen Page. Yeah, yes. Ellen Page. Of so course, I got Ellen Page. I got the, I got the, I got the page oh, Yes, yes. Ellie is the name of the character from Last of Us. Ellie. Oh, Ellie Page. Uh, yeah. that, so you just combined them. That's. All. I was just thinking Ellie. Uh, right. Uh, gotcha. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, fair. In my head. Mm. Uh, hmm. Uh, and so, like, you know, but if you actually look at the content of his games, there are hints there that maybe that dude's, like, interests and, and politics are not uh, on the up and up. Uh, and yeah. there is a degree to which even just the general response to that first story breaking, this, those set of stories breaking, was so antagonistic and so much more concerned with public perception than about making sure that your own culture at your company is is secure I'm um, like, listen, we are advice. We've been dealing with scandals and, and <laughs> shitty announcements for, for the last seven months. Um, you know, we, we've spoken pretty openly about the fact that we have uh, – that when we came here, we knew that there – that like, oh, Vice has a weird history, but we hope that we can be part of a, of a, a group that kind of pushes it in the right direction, and we know that change is slow. Uh, we did not know at all, like, how frustrating those scandals and, and bad th- those scandals would be and how people would be would be hurt um, or, or would have, have already been hurt. Um, but what we don't do is beat our chest and say things here are good, actually. Yeah. Um, we don't say, find me in the streets, you know? Um, and, like, what David Cage and, and his partner at Quantic Dream did when that first story broke was literally say, we will defend our honor. 
right? Um, I, you, and, and even I, if like they, they, their internal analysis was to suggest like this was outliers, like let's let's say like the most like the best case possible scenario for like why they feel aggrieved is like well these were outliers that you know bad things happen at, at all different levels of employment at different companies and this is not representative of like our workplace. Well, like you can still have the humility to say like well this still happened like like right. no matter how great of a workplace you run like things are going to occur and like what you are supposed to do is like show some humility over that and say i don't feel this represents the quantic dream that i go to every day but like if this happened and these people were aggrieved and they they feel insulted or oppressed and and like unhappy at their jobs like like one incident is you know one time i mean i don't mean to write the press statement for him but like that's <laughs> like like hopefully right, that's once, the hum- one incident don't feel that's of the humility type. that like that, like the, the, the way we like you know try to talk the talk and walk the walk is like you know it, is is to to think of in those terms is like what happens when it comes to your house like you need right. to pre- you need to be ready for that you need to be able to to be thinking that and it just seems like that was uh it struck me as like if that was his response like is that how he responds to actual internal grievances too? Is you know buck up and uh, I don't know. Like I, yeah. I haven't done the reporting, I can't speak to that, but I do know that uh, you know it is it is far more common for people in power to use the threat of of uh, um, the the legal uh, journey um, to try and uh, stop voices from speaking up than it is to yeah. try and make things right. It is, it is a lot. It is, uh, you know, it, it is also, we're not that far removed from Sony's statement about allegations at Naughty Dog basically being to bury it on a Saturday and mm-hmm. say like, well, we don't have, we don't have it written down anywhere, so it didn't happen. Um, God. it has not been a good year for, for these, uh, responses. Um, because the response should be to take those, those claims seriously, to investigate them internally, to take measures to, to correct, um, and, and to like, be thoughtful about the people you work with and like how to make their, if you're running a place, you know, I, I, this isn't the thing I've ever thought of before until it turned out that I came here to build this with y'all. But like, there is a responsibility if you're running a place to your workers who are like pushing themselves really hard. Like game development is a really difficult job. We, we just ran that story about the so-called joke, uh, by the Warhammer 40 K inquisitor devs, uh, about, or, or the, the PR, whoever made that statement, uh, that was like, uh, you know, well, sadly we have to delay this game, but guess what? Now our, you know, our, our devs are going to get back to work 90 hours a week until this game is finished. Like we live in a place where crunch is normalized. Um, where that, like, even that is, that work culture is acceptable, uh, is already too far. You know, forget about the photoshopping, you know, uh, people onto nudes and onto Nazi pictures. Like, that stuff that, that was happening or reportedly happening at Quantic Dream is also fucking terrible. But, like, even that base level, even without that stuff, the sort of, like, crunch culture is already bad enough. Um, and as a, as, you know, a, a manager, you have a responsibility to ensure that the people who are busting their asses and, one, are not being overworked to death, and two, like, are living in a, or working in a place, <laughs> hopefully not living there at all. Right. Uh, hopefully living with at home with their families or in their apartments or whatever uh but but are working in a sustainable and healthy and safe and comfortable positions um and that has to be a priority for you and it it needs to be something that you can put time and resources into like 
so much of this comes down to prioritization. You know, in response to to this stuff, uh, Cage said, uh, and this is in the the, the Kotaku piece, um, that like. Um, it's like we didn't we didn't know about that. If you know, obviously, I'm just like I'm not going to go and check this guy's computer. Basically, um, uh, I'm going to here it is. If we had been aware of the, these images, if we had seen them, we would have stepped in. But he creates them on his computer on his free time. I'm not going to dig into the personal computers of my employees. Um, and one like that does not line up with the facts of the of yeah. the reported cases, which have them you know being spread around the company uh which have you know uh similar distasteful images being in public in the company um but two like that response is so defensive right that response isn't quantic dream is supposed to be a safe place i take great umbrage to this i want to make sure that my that this space is is uh you know one where people can work productively where they can focus on doing their work as artists and creators and anything like this in the future has to be dealt with swiftly like it's not there's no commitment to that here. All it is is hand washing, and it's just so despicable. It's so frustrating because Cage is someone who again and again positions himself as a savior for the medium, and for whatever reason keeps getting a stage to do that. Uh, and it is it is so frustrating to be in video games where that story breaks today, and you can see people who are like, "Yeah, well, fuck the journalists because they're journalists." Um, it it sucks. <laughs> Uh, and I, you know, the answer is to just keep reporting, right? The answer is to continue reporting, to continue doing good critical work, uh, and to like kind of you know stick stick by your guns on this on this stuff. Uh, yes, true. That's easy to say. In uh, yeah, uh, 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 <laughs> that's easy. Uh, we ain't being sued because you know what? Here's here's like a very likely outcome from this yep. is that these lawsuits uh, were filed. There is going to be money spent uh, on both sides to. I don't know much about the French uh, uh, legal system, so right. I'm going to only speak from my experience um, watching some of these suits, having lived through some, some of the stuff, working at Cocker when all that was uh, crumbling. Um, and is that like not hard to imagine that this like goes through the initial phases and then is just dismissed outright? Um, but is the legacy of it is a reporter who gets you know a message from a Quantic Dream employee right. says. Well, actually, I don't have time for this. Actually, I don't want to investigate this. Because right. you know yeah. what? That is 100% what is going to happen. It is yeah. going to make any reasonable journalist uh, think, think twice about priorities, about, like, do I want – is this worth dragging my company into a legal fight? Like, how bad is this infringement? Like, right. whatever happened to this person, like, how bad is it because they've already shown that they're willing to take this to court because my own experience – with like multiple uh, yes, uh, legal 100%. teams uh, and, and multiple <laughs> companies, like like if I was to take some of that stuff to them, their response would be like, "Is this really worth it? Is this really the fight that you need our company to which, go which through?" Like, I want to say and like it's go ahead. briefly speaks to something. Again, we're not from these French outlets. Uh, but all three of us have dealt with legal teams in our time as reporters, as journalists, as critics, in which in all of those, you know, uh, circumstances, we have to run something by someone in legal uh, and say, hey, uh, you know, here's we ran that sleeping dog story. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about something we actually ran and not something that we had to kill. Um, <laughs> we ran the sleeping dog story in which is a story in which we looked at uh, what a sequel to sleeping dogs would look like based on some some uh, data that, that we received, that we verified, that we we had multiple sources uh, say was accurate. Um, and there's a lot of ways that story could have looked. 
Um, there's versions of it where it's just a huge data dump where like people's names are available, where there's like, oh yeah, here's when this person came into the office, right? We didn't do that one, right? And we weren't going to do that one. That wasn't that one. The one where we're just like, fuck it, here it, here it all is, is not on the table. But there's probably a version of it that's maybe a little more open and is like, you know, here's, here's 30 pages um, versus what we ended up doing, which was like, here are selections. And we did that because we worked very closely with Vice's legal department on figuring out what we could safely publish to make sure that our sources were protected, which is a responsibility for us, and also for what was verifiable and necessary to tell the story we wanted to tell. Um, I cannot imagine the the hoops that needed to be jumped through from these three outlets to publish the stories that they published about Qantas Dream. Yeah. Uh, again, maybe all three of those outlets had really lax lawyers, legal teams. <laughs> yeah, but no. the fact that all that it came, that this is part of why it's so, so important to me to, to say this was from three places, even though they were reporting kind of together, even though they kind of shared notes and contacts and all that stuff, that stuff is, is all absolutely true. So I don't want to say it's three completely independent stories or something, right? Uh, but they each had to be run through three editorial boards, three different legal teams. Um, and at any point, one of those people could have been like, yo, no, there's not enough here to verify this. Hey, you know, you don't have enough source, you know, uh, secondary source reporting that confirms the, 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 the kind of story that was put forward here. There's all sorts of ways for stories like this to fall about, fall apart. Trust me. <laughs> uh, but, but what you have to like, so for me, like, I just want to make sure that it's clear to people listening, because sometimes you think of like a reported story as being the only people involved are the reporter and then anybody whose specific name comes up in a story. When in fact, there's lots of interviews on background, when there's lots of interviews to, to on, you know, for people who used to be at the company and now can't be when there's lots of, uh, you know, uh, interviews where you say like, hey, can you confirm XYZ? I, I won't put your name in the thing. But on background, you're giving me the confirmation so that I can then go for forward and find another source who will put their name on it. Or I can say, hey, I've heard from such and such a person, or not even from such and such a person. I've heard from someone who knows that XYZ ha happened, excuse me, happened. Can you confirm for my story? Those sorts of things happen all the time and don't make it into the you know 1,500 word story or 3,000 word story or 500 word story. Um, and so like, it is a, it's a thing we've talked about before, that there is a serious risk in the, in the current moment for journalists when people with big, you know, uh, bank accounts can come for them and be like, yo, we're going to shut this down. No idea how this case is going to shake out. I hope that the journalists are well protected. I hope that their organizations protect them and, and as individuals. Um, I guess be, we'll see. It should be noted as well that this is a major thing and sort of a, obviously global democracy right now in terms right, of freedom of exactly. press. But it's... God damn. It, so it's incredibly important in our industry and it's incredibly important in the wider world as well. So this is this is one of those issues where it's like, yeah, this one has a lot of uh, tentacles, I suppose. You could say. Right. I mean, that's the thing that's so weird, right? Is like, so we had a question in to briefly dip into the question bucket because this went a little longer. Uh. Uh, we had one come in from Chris uh, from Philly who who says... Um, as someone slowly growing more entrenched in academia, I'm trying to trace some links between literary theory and game narratives. One of the most frustrating things about it is how closed off we are from anything that feels like it could reach a wider group of people. And as someone who grew up in a fairly privileged place where a lot of people weren't, my hometown was on the edge of West Philadelphia and has a lot of first-generation immigrants and people of color.
color and a huge range of wealth between its more suburban and urban sides, I want to find a way to both continue doing the work I love doing and have it, have it have some kind of positive impact on the people like those I grew up with. Y'all seem to have such a, have had such a range of experiences getting to this point. I was wondering uh, if that's ever a question you've grappled with yourselves and how, uh, and how you feel you have or haven't answered it. In other words, how does the work we do now, you know, as, as games journalists, like, affect the world and help people, you know, reach the people we grew up with, reach the audiences that we know are underserved, etc. And it's funny because, as Danielle just said, like, the big picture view, <laughs> games journalism is such a tiny little corner of the world. Um, you know, when you have uh, something like Sinclair uh, Media, the stuff that's been happening with them in the news lately around pressuring their journalists to kind of do spin for like kind of a right wing ideology uh, at, at their local news stations. Not just not just like this isn't just like a Fox News thing, right? Like yeah. Sinclair owns a bunch of local news affiliates uh, and and had people read this like really absurd thing about fake news uh, and and then like in general has also had some some cases where, where uh, journalists and, and news anchors have come forward and said like yeah there's a bunch of shit we're not comfortable with um, and you know it's funny to be like oh but also swords of ditto battle tech <laughs> Um, but uh, you know there is for me there is a responsibility to talk about this stuff in the space because weirdly I think we almost have an opportunity to talk about it Um because we're reaching people who maybe aren't going to go listen to citations needed, you know, right. um, they're not going to go dig into the the Deadspin article about Sinclair or about, you know, the, the they're not going to go read Media Matters or you know what I mean? Like they're not going to dig into that side of this thing. Um, and and so like and also weirdly, we've confronted this stuff before in a, in a weird way here or there, not not the specific games journalists being sued, but we've seen what the larger social kind of problems can look like in in the microscope uh, in the microscopic community of games you know and in, in just our little kind of diorama we've seen how small trends can it, trends elsewhere can kind of like impact a whole community all at once whether that's through something like gamergate um or even i guess like you know patrick you, you know it wasn't kotaku being sued by by hulk hogan right, right. but like gawker is a is like a society blog or had been kind of a society and news blog yeah. that that was hit by this in a similar way. And Kotaku was almost caught up by that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there is a responsibility to at least talk about this stuff. And, and I, I, you know, we've talked before when these stories first broke, like what is our responsibility to this game and covering it and ways in which, you know, for, to our audience about this game and the ways in which we should cover it and, and whether or not we should confront this stuff or give it airtime or what, like, and I'm still working through some of that. You know, I have some great pitches from writers I love about how to tackle Detroit um, and we've got to figure out what, what, which of those writers we support and what stuff we do internally um, and, and what sort of coverage we want to give it all together. Like, I, I'm not quite sure where I am on that stuff yet. And today's <laughs> response definitely gives me uh, some, some, some more thinking to do, you know? Yeah. Cause I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's not as easy. I mean, I think people uh, uh, with not the uh, purposely, not the best of intentions, like looked at something like how we handled kingdom come deliverance and said, right. Well, they're just gonna, you know, any any game that you know runs aside of their politics, like that's just the treatment. It's like, you know, like that was a very deliberate choice yep. for like a very specific reason, and uh, it's actually like, you know, look at you know, Dawson your review of like Far Cry Five, um, right. or like you know, uh, certain things in my like God of War review. Like, actually, like there's usefulness in like using like moments like that to like discuss those issues in like that 
the like a, the, the the scope of coverage and like maybe you know where we'll land on Detroit Become Human is like actually let, let's think about all this shit and then what do we have to say about what this game is and what it says and what right. it tries to do and where that fits in like a larger context of like Quantic Dream and video game like that's 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 very much still like a viable path it's just a a matter of like where we fall and and often like often like how how we even just respond to the game right like part of Kingdom Come was like I don't know, like didn't respond very strongly to the game. Right. It's like, do we do we really want to walk this hill because of everything else? And it was like, right. ah, like no. Um, so yeah, yeah. I um, I agree with all of the above. I also, this is also <laughs> why I volunteer, uh, <laughs> and and I need to feel like I, I do things in my community, like my local community, as well as the sort of bigger community uh, that I live in, sort of online. So that's. I, w- I would lose my mind, I think, if I didn't uh, do sort of like a physical thing <laughs> as right. well as, as sort of like the, the, the mental and, and intellectual things that I do. So that's I, if, if uh, the writer finds that helpful at all, I, uh, I sure do. Yeah, definitely local involvement feels like the not the cure to this per se. Um, and, and also maybe not the only the only technique like I um it's definitely one of those things where like I definitely have met people who are like, Oh yeah, like I'm an activist. And what they mean is like, I tweet a bunch. Yeah. Um, and that can be really (laughs) frustrating. Um, uh, not that, not that online, you know, work isn't valuable, but like that there is, it's a lot of what we do. (laughs) It's a lot of what we do, but like, and I've made peace with that, which is why I don't call myself an activist. Right. Right. Like, uh, I think that I'm, I think I absolutely think that I can help inform people and can help bring people together and can help people engage with critical ideas. But when I see the work that activists do on the ground or that volunteers do on the ground or that charity workers or that, you know, lots of people can, can go make someone's, you know, people who, who are actually part of neighborhood programs uh, to, to, you know, uh, combat violence or to ensure combat poverty or hunger. Like there is such a big difference between that and me retweeting some good shit. You know, um, that I think that if you are doing something in the academic space or in the kind of pop cultural criticism space or there is a way in which you should be thinking about how to be involved locally, whether that's just in your PTA or in local town council meetings um, or doing the other thing. Right. Which is like it sounds like Chris from Philly, you are pretty committed to the idea of producing work that at the very least reaches that audience and isn't just reaching the kind of ivory tower or academia audience, which is hard to do because as someone who comes from academia, there is a lot of resistance or there has been historically a lot of resistance um, uh, uh, of work that does that sort of crossover publishing. uh, The academic publishing space is very buttoned up until you are like a tenured and, you know, a tenured professor who's already published a bunch um, at which point then you get to experiment, but also then you're like 15 to, years too late to do ex- to do anything that's like truly experimental um it's a weird space so what i'll say is like commit to that try to find places locally that you can that you can contribute or that you can help and try to find issues where there is room for that crossover and where your expertise in academia can provide some some uh additional help like it sounds like if you're what you're doing is lit theory and game narratives think about going to like a, a you know a a, a 
program for for kids right and like running a uh you know some sort of uh weekend story times or like something that's about getting kids involved with media criticism whether that's like playing video games and talking about them like what was um sam who used to be on uh match three did something like this mm-hmm. right patrick yeah 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 he worked uh i mean he you know like worked with kids was a was a, a an educator um but also like helped run like game spaces for kids that you know, uh, gave them uh, a cool place to interact with games after school. And right. a lot of games that they didn't know existed because like, he was someone that like was well-versed in, in that world um, and could help expose those kids to interesting things that they might not come across otherwise. Right. And like, right. that was his one way of like, you know, trying to, 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 to give back or to, to have something that felt like a, a practical um, effect, even if you yeah. don't necessarily see like, uh, where that leads it's just like you know being able to put something out there and uh connect with people uh you know was very meaningful to him and that sounds like something that this reader can do too totally uh, uh for people who don't know match three people should go listen to match three it was a very good podcast yeah. uh which yeah, is still available uh, right so yeah uh, yes sort of yes and no so yes if you go to archive <laughs> it was archive.is i think that's uh the, i i put up an archived version Gotcha. Of it, which uh, uh, I didn't realize they would just like host like dead oh, wow. podcasts. Um, uh, there's probably like bandwidth limits and to stuff like that, but yeah, like all of Match Three is is archived up there. Um, but then I have to repopulate the feed, which gotcha. I did like the first episode, and I just haven't gotten around to the rest. But it's also it's going to freak a bunch of people out because they'll just think there's like a bunch of new episodes, seventy not, new episodes. Oh. Not true. Um, not true. Not true. Um, but yeah, it is. That is all, all up there. Yeah, like a lot of what Sam uh, spoke to on that podcast I did also with Kotaku writer uh, Gita Jackson was, uh, yeah, a lot of like through the lens of of education and uh-huh. um, like just observing. Like it, it would have been awesome to have heard from Sam uh, when all the Fortnite stuff was happening because oh, he's basically, oh, he basically on the ground level is, is all that was was uh, taking off. So totally, yeah. All right, let's talk about our waypoints. Uh, also, briefly, as always, if you have an email, you can send it over to uh, to gamingadvice.com. Use the subject questions. We got a bunch of really great ones in, but obviously we spent the time elsewhere today. We'll, we'll loop back around for some of those next time. Uh, let's talk about our waypoints for the week. Patrick, you said you have a second one. What is, what is your sure. second one? Sure. Uh, uh, over the last couple of days, I watched uh, Insidious, The Last Key, the fourth in the Insidious franchise, uh, which I actually uh, I, I quite like those, uh, those movies. They have a, a really good style in the first movie especially is uh really scary and well done um and uh i the uh, the fourth one's not up particularly good but i was disappointed be, uh, largely because the director they had chosen uh was this really talented indie filmmaker um who i would recommend not watching insidious the last key and instead watching the movie that got him picked up and on the radar of uh horror director james wan who's off doing aquaman and fast and the furious now um the movie he did before was called the taking of deborah logan um, which uh, uh, posits itself as uh, a, a movie about a potential exorcism, but like the oh. the, the way it, uh, it it also deals with um, uh, like aging and and what it means uh, to get old and to lose parts of your mental faculties and twist that up in um, a really interesting yeah. like really thought interesting. I don't want to say too much about the plot, but like, there's a lot of like um, uh, playing around with those ideas, and uh, you can see why he was picked up to do a bigger movie. And I think that movie is a much better uh, showcasing of of his talents. Nice, awesome. I think it's on Netflix. It was on Netflix for a while. I don't know if it's still there. Danielle, what about you? What is what is your waypoint for the week? All right. Well, I'm not going to necessarily recommend that other people do this, but I had a very interesting experience with some '60s board games that were made for young girls. (laughs) Oh boy! So I played. Mystery Date, the original 1965 Mystery Date 
uh, this weekend, as well as a game called What Shall I Wear, which is like a Milton Bradley game, I think, maybe. Well, wait, what did you we Just go over these a little bit. Right, I, want, right. I want details. Mystery Date. You might be familiar with Mystery Date, because it, it had like a 90s reboot that was like slightly modern, modernized. Uh, but like, basically, the entire mechanics of the game are collecting uh, the right outfit. Uh, like three pieces of the right outfit for a cool date with a hot boy, and oh, okay. and then <laughs> you land. You know, you're you're sort of you have a little piece on a board, and you have cards that are you know where you collect the, the pieces of outfits. And then if you land on a open the door square, you open this door in the middle of the game board, and there's a mystery boy. He's either the skiing boy or the bowling boy or the formal boy. I think there's one or the other dud, boy as, as, or the as, dud, uh, famously <laughs> famously uh, yeah. uh done in the simpsons right yeah or the yes the dud Homer by the way shouting, you got the dud the dud is definitely like the cutest one so i don't know what the hell i think that's just on. a time thing probably yeah. right like a like a that's like you know it's nerd chic i'm sure that that whoever that kid is now he, is he definitely just looked, he's in bushwick that's all that's all uh-huh. that's happening <laughs> he's just a dude in bushwick uh perfect but like both this and and also what shall I wear? Very similar mechanics. What shall I wear? But what shall I wear is like slightly less sexist uh, because the entire point of it is also to sort of collect outfits, but it's to do activities, not necessarily like land a man. Like there's there's okay. activities that are like going fishing or going swimming or going on a road race, and there's also like girls of color uh, in that oh, one. Wow. So it was actually like That's way better. Yeah, this was 1969, and I th- the mystery date is 1965. So, like, what shall I wear? Definitely still obsessed with clothing and, like, wearing the right clothes for an occasion. But at least, at least you get, like, options. And one of them is, like, going to a college, like, uh, open house, I guess. So it's like, oh, cool. All right, that's way better than just, you're going to die alone if you don't have the right outfit for Bobby, <laughs> you know? So, uh, Perfect. very interesting games to play as sort of, like an exercise in oh wow this is this sure is some fucking propaganda <laughs> normie ass propaganda from yeah. the 60s uh but this was like what was marketed to girls in the 60s mm-hmm. so fascinating terrifying uh experience god that is i i really love playing games from other eras like that which is not a thing we really get to do that often yeah. because uh, video games are I, so so i i guess what i'd say is that like the theming of board games is so complete com- not complete but like you know you could have a game about dating from the 1960s in the board game space um and that's not to say that there weren't old dating sims in the in the 1980s or, or games about romance or, or something like that but video games and computer games things were like s- so much more focused on shooting aliens and driving cars fast uh, especially in the arcade scene and like lots of like what our nostalgia retro gaming vibes are are not that focused you know or, or not not that focused or don't go far don't go that far back you know so it's nice to be able to be like okay well, let's look at this cultural artifact we have a really great piece on the site um from robert rath uh who looked at the history of the game of life right yeah. uh, and some other similar the mansion games. of happiness it started the, out as a religious propaganda 
game called The Mansion of Happiness, and it was about exactly. how to get to heaven and live a good life, basically. So yeah, and that eventually became the game of life, yeah. and like it's worth it's worth looking at that stuff. I love looking at like the history of games like Monopoly, um, and just board games and and tabletop games and war games uh, in general have had such such a a, a florid and strange history um, <laughs> that that. One day, video games will get there. In, in, in 50 years, people will be looking back and be like, ah, David Cage, right. That fucker. Uh, <laughs> until then, it's up to us to do that. Um, my waypoint for the week is unsurprisingly... Watch Detroit Book of Human is going to be really, really good. Oh, okay. man. It could be, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, who the f- I hope it is, too. I have doubts, but I, who the fuck knows? It could be really good. It could be like, we could all go play it and be like... Man, fuck! Like here we are. It's super <laughs> Best good. Best surprise of the that year. Would, yeah, that would be that would make for like a really fascinating like yeah. review too. Totally is like totally. how do I how how do you sort of like with these two things in one hand? Right. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Totally. We'll see. We'll see how well plus shakes I, out. Plus, I like good games. I do like yeah, good you know. games a lot. One of them uh, is a game called BattleTech <laughs> that comes out this week. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into it here. Like I said, I'm going to talk about it with Rob at some point this week on on a podcast. Um. It is a it's a fascinating game because there is it's it's one of those games that's going to be hard for me to actually recommend to a wide audience. Patrick, you asked me in chat after we streamed a little bit of it. Oh, is this where you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna break it to me? Oh. Maybe. Um. So you basically were like, hey, 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 is that a game that I, I like could XCOM. play? I like Fire Emblem. I like Into the Breach, but like I, I I'm unwilling and not interested to go into like the deep end. Is is basically why so I this say with strategy games. I would say that this is not the deep end, but it it doesn't do it the best job of telling you that it's not the deep end. Uh. Um, it's a game that like I think has a lot of really fan. So BattleTech is uh, a game that's set that takes place in the BattleTech universe, aka the the Mech Warrior universe. If you played any of the Mech Warrior kind of action mm-hmm. mech games, um, I, you know Mech Warrior is actually a really interesting comparison here because like Mech Warrior is a game that on its face is like. Ugh, there's like heat management and there's like all these subsystems and like how do I know which weapons to shoot and there's ranges to manage and there is a lot there's more right but it isn't a flight sim do you know what I mean you're not ever in mech warrior in the mech warrior games you're never like going through a hyper complicated startup sequence where you need to like mouse look around your cockpit and flip the right switches the way if you were playing like Falcon whatever or Jane's whatever any like the true like flight simulators it, I, yeah, I, played, I played a lot of Mech Warrior 2 right. on my, like, um, on my so PC I feel like this day. game is very similar to that I mean like obviously it's the same mechs it's the same universe uh, I think it's set before Mech Warrior 2 in the in the big universe um but but you're, and you're dealing with the same sorts of things. Um, so you are dealing with things like heat management. Um, but what that really means is there's a bar that fills up, and if it gets too hot, if it goes too too far, if you fire too many like laser weapons, you know, in a row, you're going to overheat and cause some damage to your internals. Um, yes, there are you know lots of icons on the screen uh, and lots of weird sub rules. But I don't know that it is any more complicated than like mid mid to late game XCOM. Uh, I think it starts at a higher level of, of like, hmm, and I don't think it does a great job of introducing you to some of its core mechanics. There's a really good guide that's on the forums that's written by um, uh, someone who works at, at Harebrain Schemes. Uh, so it was developed by Harebrain Schemes, who made the Shadowrun uh, games recently. The I played, Shadowrun and returns. I played that first one, and it was really good, and I heard the second the one The second two are, like, so much better than the first one. Huh. Like, though, both of those games are high contenders for a future Waypoint 101, because I think they're, like, genuinely really cool RPGs. Um, and so it's more complex than those games, and less story-heavy than those games. There's still lots of story, mm. really gorgeous cutscenes, actually. Like, really phenomenal cutscenes, great soundtrack. Um, 
uh, but like less like I am this one character who is I mean you are a character but you're, it's not like I'm a character in this world it's like you're a character who ends up running a mercenary company uh, and you have like your crew it's like, again really cool crew really diverse characters like I don't outside of the mech warriors who you hire there are no white people on that ship and like is your character if your character is white but there's like and the universe is so fascinating because it is our universe but like 1500 years in the future so like you know your your ship engineer is uh like wears a hijab and is is muslim and like talks about her grandfather who runs a uh a taxi service to dar al salam which is like each of the factions has enough enough of an islamic population they each have their own holy sites and so this is the Dar es Salaam of this one sub faction and this other guy you know he grew up you know kind of in a blue collar family and his dad you know worked on the on the like space uh, docks his whole life and now he's like I'm getting to go out there and live the dream my dad was stuck on the docks I'm on the ship and it's like really fascinating character work inside of that and then you go into the the com the, the tactical combat and it is it is complex because it's different because like. You expect XCOM, which means you expect like, oh, there will be little cover icons, and there aren't cover icons, right? Um, you can be in cover by being in the forest, and that reduces the damage you take, but that is not the same thing because it shouldn't be, because big walking mechs are not people, you know? Um, there is a difference between being in a huge mech, and I guess the one thing that I'll say is, is super fascinating to me is that the there was a different sense of time scale in this game and it's something I'm really excited to talk to, to Rob about when it comes to successes and failures that you can win you know you, you win a, a fight in XCOM and let's say that like you got maybe a couple people hurt but you didn't get anybody killed you know you run the clock for a little bit and those people get healed up and they're they're going to be fine there are some fights that I walk away from in in uh, BattleTech where they goddamn well might, may as well have been losses because you have a bank account in this game because you're running a company, you're running a mech warrior company, you're running a mercenary company and it costs money to fix up your shit and it costs parts. And like, you got to make sure that like, um, you know, you, you are, are spending the time to repair the right mechs before you go out to combat. And all that isn't actually all that complicated when it comes to the mechanics of it. But what ends up happening is like you win a fight, you get your paycheck, you like get to salvage stuff from the, the mechs that you've destroyed. And like maybe you got a headshot. So there's actually a lot of salvage available. And maybe you negotiated a special deal where you get more salvage and less money. So it's super exciting. And then you look at the cost it's going to, it's going to take to repair all your shit. And you're like, God damn, how are we going to make ends meet? Like, I don't know how to make it another month or two. There's a little, like, there's a little clock that's ticking down. That's basically like, this is how many months you have left uh, before you go broke. Uh, and that's kind of the equivalent of, of all of the countries pulling out of the XCOM uh, agreement or whatever. It's like, do you go broke or not? And so you end up like chasing these little small missions and every once in a while, a big one comes in and you can kind of stay afloat off of that money for a little bit longer. Um, it is, it, like it actually has that weird kind of the, the story of something like a Firefly or a Cowboy Bebop of just like how am I gonna fucking make ends meet, um, and it does that really well. So uh, it's like if you can get over that initial hump of not being too stressed about heat management and like positioning and all of that, and just kind of play the game and let yourself just advance. Um, and also, it's a really decent save system where it's just constantly doing background saves and telling you where they are, and you can kind of like jump back. I've jumped back to the start of a battle a bunch of times because I like lost a pilot or something. Um, you know, you'll be okay. But it, I'm a little cautious about recommending it to you, Patrick, because mm. I can see you bouncing off of it and being like, "Oh, fuck this game." <laughs> but yeah, sounds like sounds like I might be more served just spending more, going back to Into the Breach and just playing some more Into the Breach. It's such game. a different yeah. game. It's like the opposite of what I love about Into the Breach, which is its simplicity, um, and it's like 
I mean, this game still has some choreography to it. This game still has like those moments where like uh, it does scale really well. Little mechs are really tiny. Big mechs are really big. Uh, and so like having a 20 foot tall or 20 ton mech being chased around by a 55 ton mech, you're just like, oh shit, I got to get out of this forest. This sucks. Uh, and and Into the Breach doesn't really do scale in that way. Um, and so it, it delivers in like a different sort of mech fantasy. Um, but it's something we'll be talking about more uh, with Rob and I'll try to do a couple, couple more uh, streams of it for sure. Maybe more than a couple more. We'll see how they go. <laughs> Um, that is my waypoint. I had to talk about Max. I'm Austin Walker, goddamn. So, <laughs> all right, that is going to do it for us this week. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to Bowen for letting us use the track "Miss You" off the EP Pale Machine. Find out more about that waypoint dot zone slash b o e n. Shout outs also to who else are we shout out? I'm shouting out shout outs to you know everybody on the team. Shout outs to to Danica. Shout outs to Rob. Shout outs to Joel. Shout outs to Natalie. Just shout outs to Matt Pasquale and his 16 kills in Pokemon. Yo, oh, that was unbelievable. Oh. Please go watch. Danica just made a video comparing your crossbow situation to to Matt Pasquale's uh-huh, like uh-huh, John Wicking uh-huh. of that yeah. entire uh-huh. game. Uh, go watch that over at twitter.com slash waypoint. As always, you can also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash waypointvice, youtube.com slash waypointvice, twitch.tv slash waypoint, uh, and, and, you know, as always, waypoint.vice.com. All right, until uh, until I eventually trick Rob into getting onto a microphone to talk about Mextrip with me for at least an hour. Good. <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for us. Danielle, what do we say to him? Be good and be good at it. Peace. Take that advice, David Cage. Ah! When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.